How can digital technologies strengthen democracies? This is the question we will dive into during this mini podcast series that we are doing together with the European Forum Alpbach. We will interview three members of Rethink Alliances, a democracy initiative that Forum launched together with the Mercator Foundation. This year's topics of the Forum are the fundamentals of democracy and whether they are threatened by recent events ranging from financial crisis, the rise of populism, climate change and most recently the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello everyone, I'm Lucas from Decentrum and we are a young Swiss organization that inquires about the consequences that digitalization has for us as a society. We are going to complement the online panels of the forum with podcasts that focus not only on threats, but also on the chances that change brings with it, to think about a future that is not only possible, but desirable. Our first guest is Joanna Rodzinska, who works for the International Republican Institute and is the regional director for Europe there. Hello, Joanna. It's a pleasure to have you. Tell us a bit about yourself. What are you doing? So thank you for having me, first of all. And I have been with IRI just a few months, so just since March, heading up their Brussels office, which oversees the Beacon Project, which I think is the main focus for your program here. The Beacon Project, even though I'm new with them, ironically, I used to oversee the project in my former job, so I had a fair amount of contact with it. But the Beacon Project was launched as an IRI initiative in 2014, 15, I think. And the primary focus of it at that point, at the inception, was that there was a recognition that there was suddenly a tremendous amount of disinformation flowing around that was definitely disrupting um, particularly politics and decision-making in the European context primarily. Of course, as we know, this is not a European phenomenon, but has gone larger, but certainly um, became far more noticeable in the headlines uh, due to the conflict in Ukraine, right? It's the first, I think, first real moment where it all of a sudden hit home that this kind of information warfare being carried out on many different fronts was actually having an impact on decision-making and in terms of skewing, um, skewing the information that was being used to inform policy. And so one of the main goals for the Beacon Project was to help demonstrate that this information was in fact not correct, that it was in fact being planted and very intentionally distributed by elements, in this case Russia specifically, that had a very, very specific point of contention in the conflict, right? That there was a different means to try and reach political ends that it's not that it's new. Disinformation has been around since time began, but all of a sudden took on a different measure and took on many different forms and very, very effectively exploited all of the technological tools which were intended for good, essentially, right? I mean, you know, from the from the inception of the internet and the growth of technology, it's always been that it's been a force for good because the more that people know, the more informed they are, the better they are in a position to make good decisions and good choices. So it hasn't quite turned out that way as it turns out, um, that there's a lot more vulnerabilities and a lot of things have, have changed. So this is a very long answer to your initial question, but it was but it was IRI's way to try and seek to address that because the primary focus of the institute is working with politicians and decision makers and political parties, and there was the realization that 
in having conversations with them about specific policy issues, looking at particularly the East, they were incredibly poorly informed and not even poorly informed, but misinformed, right? And when you traced back the source of the information that they had, it turned out that it was it was planted essentially, right? That I mean, it had it had it had very little to do with facts. So that's the long answer. But that's kind of what the inception was and what the project looks like. So you would say that digital technologies play a big role in this? Yes, yes. I mean, it's been you know the all of the different means of digital communications has accelerated the process of how misinformation, disinformation is spread, right? It doesn't create it, much like, you know, the, 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 the issues that often are surrounded it aren't manufactured by anybody. They're very clearly problems in society, say, or kind of like un unresolved political questions. But the speed at which things get distributed, the number of channels through which they get distributed means that it's much more difficult to grasp, frankly, right? So not even to control, but to even kind of keep, keep an eye on as to where all of these flows of information go. I mean, it used to be quite simple because you had newspapers, radio, and television, and that was about it. And all of a sudden now you have everything, everything, right? So, and sometimes it's simply a picture that ends up being speaking volumes instead of what you would used to have as an op-ed or an article, right? Totally. And what do you think are possible ways to counter this? Do you figure out any best practices or ideas or also digital tools you can use in the fight against this misinformation? The difficult thing with the study of this field, and I'm sure if you've been speaking or you will be speaking to, to other people who also work in it, is you know the, the, the two primary issues or challenges with disinformation, it is, if not impossible, it is extremely difficult to, with a hundred degree of certainty, prove attribution, which means you can't prove necessarily where it's coming from. Sometimes you can, and very often, It gets washed out into the mix. And the other is that you can't prove causality, which means that you can have a piece of disinformation, but to actually prove that it had a specific impact is also much more difficult. In terms of countering it, it's also very often, there's, you know, it's a very large field, and so I'm using, the, I'm using a, a very general term if you're talking about disinformation. If you're talking about targeted points of specifically planted information, well, then you can counter it with facts, right? But the difficulty always ends up being is that a lie travels much faster than the truth. And if you're always behind it, then it also it's difficult to catch up. So I think that the there's not a great satisfactory answer to your question in terms of how do you do it, because it actually requires a very holistic and a multidirectional approach, which is, I think, what's happening now. It means that I think that the new challenge is, is that not all of these things work in concert, but you have approaches ranging from media literacy in terms of, you know, discerning what your sources are, understanding what your sources are, how you consume media, not being trusting absolutely of every media that comes across and every soundbite that comes across. But, you know, that's, that's, that's a process and I think a much more challenging one than simply media literacy programs because it does end up being rooted in education systems and Curiosity, right? I mean, human beings tend to like to pass things quickly and to not think too much <laughs> as, it, as it turns out. And so to, to stop those habits are more difficult. For ones that are more 
coherent campaigns, then I think that ends up being simply trying to maintain integrity within the media that there is and to make sure that the, not even positive, but in terms of like the correct messages do come out. But but again, I think here it ends up being more effective. It would be nice to work on the entirety of the population so that you don't get these these rumor mills running around. But, you know, the point, at least what we try to do is that at least try to make sure that the decision makers are well armed <laughs> in terms of what the facts are and to support at least think tanks, for example, and to make sure that they have a voice that's being heard in policy and so that at least policy and political decisions are being made based on facts and actual data as opposed to emotion, yes. which is not usually the best place to go. This is super interesting. And we're from Switzerland as a think tank that works here, but also Europe wide. And we don't hear all too much about this warfare on information going on. We can hear that Russia is trying to undermine democracy sometimes, but it's not all too much in the media. Do you think that the news coverage around here or like also in Germany or France is sufficient on this topic? Probably not. I think that one of the difficulties has been is that this falls into kind of a larger issue. I'm not going to speak about Switzerland, but certainly in some of the other countries is that it, it comes on top of domestic disputes and polarization that tends to have a particular view of Russia or not, right? So it ends up being filed into other discussions anyways, as very often those who are vocal about the threat Russia poses specifically into the information space and the role that they play, particularly in European politics, is not very positive, uh, tend, tend to fall within a specific political grouping anyways. And I think that that's the difficulty, is that it, to, 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 have a, to have a understanding of what the threat that it poses across political lines in a nuanced and calm manner. And it ends up being a little hysterical, I think, is the difficulty. And, it, and, it's, and it's difficult to have, again, a, a, a more subtle conversation about it, which doesn't mean that that doesn't happen on the political level and it doesn't happen behind closed doors. I think that there's more of an, I think that there's more of an understanding in those kinds of circles, um, particularly in security and military circles, than there is among the general public. So I would, I would also, I would also make that distinction, right? I think that very often it's very reductionist that well, Russia is just bad and this is this is all evil and all the rest of it. And, and obviously that's not true, but which doesn't mean that they play fair <laughs> either. And and they don't and they don't certainly engage where they have quite specific interests to engage in. So. There is a lot more nuance, I think, than tends to be presented. But the, again, the very long answer, the short answer is that no, I don't think it's discussed enough. Yeah, um, because totally. I don't think it's discussed yeah. calmly enough. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We also see a lot of this U.S. and Russia binary opposition here, and we think it's sucked up within this a lot. And now reading about the Beacon yeah. Project and also talking to a friend of mine who lives within the Baltic states realized that there's real panic going on over there over what Russia is doing. And then he also mentioned in this follow up question that China is now entering this game as well with similar tactics. Would you agree? 
They are. It's 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 yes. I would I would agree. Um, I'll stay I'll stay with your Baltic states. I mean, so I I myself am Polish um, is one. So we've had we've had not very great experiences with our eastern neighbor. I have to say. Um, but in my previous job, I also covered the Western former Soviet Union for years, including Ukraine. So, so when you when you witness firsthand how these things go, how effectively, efficiently they are spread, I think that it, it becomes more, it's obvious to us, I would say, right? The further east you are, the closer you are. It's not paranoia. It's just a, a different kind of understanding. In terms of China... What's interesting is that it's not, particularly the information space is not, has not traditionally been one where China has been particularly good, right? They have been quite straightforward in their, in their approaches to things. They're very cut and dried. They don't, they don't play this kind of game so much. It, it strikes me that the Russians have a better track record at it and are, and are somewhat more, it's their forte, Right, they're they're quite they're quite effective. The Chinese are not, but you can see that they are certainly within the COVID epidemic. They have been trying to also mimic some of the some of the tactics that the that the Russians have used in the in the information space. How effective that is, again, it's a question. For now, I think it's a little bit less so that that the decisions and and relations with China are driven somewhat from a different um, perspective. But yes, you can see that, that they have understood that this is actually an effective means of conducting unofficial politics. We've been talking about this disinformation campaigns now a lot. Could you just make an example of what kind of disinformation we're talking about for our listeners? Because someone might not understand in what way they try to undermine the political situation or yes, the information in the more um, Western Europe states with this. Okay. Yes, and that's probably a very fair way of putting it, because in the still Russian-speaking space, or where the majority of the population will understand Russian, it, it looks very, very different from it does outside of it. A Hungarian colleague who also works for a think tank, I think, put it best. The way that dis Russian disinformation specifically works is that it doesn't create a wound, but it pours salt in it. And so the way that the disinformation works And again, you're using, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the term, but I think that it's the, it's the one that everybody's settled on. What tends to happen in, in cases that we have seen is that there is a local issue, right? A pain point about something. Let us use migration is actually not a bad issue. Where there is a local dispute, and absolutely an organic one, and one that is homegrown, right? That there is actually like a debate on the ground. All of a sudden, you find a news story pop up about a group of immigrants who have attacked and defiled a woman somewhere near the central station. So this was actually the case from Germany, very specifically several years ago, which I think has been one of the most popular ones to show it. You know, the news spread very quickly. There was absolute outrage, obviously fanned any anti-immigrant, particularly anti-Middle East sentiments in the city. And it turned out that it never happened. That was a story that literally never existed. And if you traced it back to where the source was, again, it was a random website, small readership, unclear ownership, but they managed to put it into the media 
live stream, if you want, where it got picked up and distributed. That is a separate issue. So it means, again, the problem itself, or how do you say, the contentious issue is not necessarily, it's not manufactured. The conduits by which it travels are also not necessarily illegitimate. There is a case to be made for the exigency or the pressures of the 24-hour news cycle means that even the editors don't check the news enough in order to feed it, right? But so these small sensationalist stories that turn to be nothing and that end up creating an even bigger issue than what originally began, right? Um, so for example. This is super interesting. And before that, you also mentioned the corona pandemic. <laughs> yeah. And we were wondering how do you think the experiences through the corona pandemic differed in the Western Europe countries to the Eastern Europe countries? And do you think any of these problems got accentuated during it? Do you think we have any learnings, good or bad, from that? I think that um, there's still a lot to be seen when you start taking it apart. The biggest challenge with the COVID pandemic was, again, how quickly different information came in, whether it was verified or not, how quickly it spread. Fear is probably the best accelerator of any kind of bad news. And how much this different between, differed between East and West, I think that the main difference is a little bit tied to what, not so much East and West, because I don't think it's not that. I think that it's more how much faith the citizenry has in official media. If you have faith in the BBC, you're going to listen to what the BBC says, right? Basically, you're not necessarily going to question that. If you have a situation like Hungary, where the state has not been known for being particularly nice to the media, and the media is definitely controlled by the state, and there's a lack of trust towards state media, then automatically you start questioning as to what whether they're telling you is true or not. Also, how transparent the government is, how quickly it actually even updates the information that it has, um, even if it's prefaced by saying, we do not know yet, however, this is what we are doing. So, so I think that it ends up being tied more to the governance structures than it does to, to disinformation. It also just means that the field is far more ripe for any kind of disinformation. So what we did see in a number of countries was the organic growth of absolutely bewilderingly crazy uh, conspiracy theories on one hand, right? But here, quite frankly, Great Britain did not differ significantly from Slovakia, right? I mean, if you in the UK, you had people taking down 5G antennas because they were spreading COVID, well, then it's really hard to say that the West is particularly better than the East in handling things like that. What remains unclear. So a number of the organizations that we worked with, we did act as an aggregator because they obviously were very involved with tracking misinformation and disinformation within their own countries. And in some cases, actually working with the government to try and track down um, disinformation and counter it. So in the case of Slovakia, for example, the, the um, health ministry did actually turn to independent disinformation monitors to help them track disinformation and try and quell it, basically, because a lot of them were quite dangerous, frankly, as well, right, in terms of quack cures 
and these strange things of boil vinegar and drink it up your nose, whatever, right? And you'll forgo COVID. But so that there was a awareness of the responsibility to handle it. But what is unclear is how much or what kind of stories were planted from abroad to take advantage of the situation. That still, I think, is being sorted out. In some places, there's a suspicion, but then it goes back to what I began with is that in many cases, it's very difficult to prove attribution with any degree of certainty. So you would say accountability is one of the big problems that we have yes. to address these issues? I think so, yes. All right. Um, and then if you think about the long shot, how do these threats or this disinformation campaigns actually threaten democracies? What is the goal here or how does this work? It's undermining the belief that the state system as it is works for a citizen and is valuable, right? So, I mean, it's, it's very, at its core, it's very anarchist, frankly, right? So, you know, I, I, I have no issues with question everything. I think that you should question everything, but you have to remain within the lines. Here, it ends up being you can't trust anybody, you can't speak to anybody, so it exacerbates polarization, it exacerbates a lack, it doesn't offer a solution either, frankly, right? It's just tear everything down. We can't trust anybody. It doesn't matter who you vote for because ultimately you're left to your own devices. I mean, what it does is you can have issues with any kind of government structure. Um, you can have issue with party politics as they exist. But to offer an absolute void in response where you don't try and engage in any kind of constructive criticism, constructive dialogue, um, where you try and engage the people that you disagree with and everybody gets caught in their own bubbles, yammering at one another is simply not a way to run a society either, I don't think. So, so I mean, I think that in the long run, that's probably the biggest threat that you have. And again, you know, the, the march towards polarization and diverse views uh, has been long coming. But I do think that the disinformation has aggravated it, accelerated it, amplified it to the point that you do have a marked rise of not even extremist parties, though you have those, but you have anti-systemic parties, right? So you have the rise of movements that don't know how to function with a par within a parliamentary democracy without offering any kind of alternative. So if you're looking at the European project as a whole, so not only on the domestic level, on the country level, but then on the context of the European Union, absolutely, that is the case. Um, and if you want to extrapolate even farther, and again, there's obviously a lot of issues in the world, so I'm not going to blame this is not a sole source issue, but in terms of the transatlantic alliance and transatlantic relations, I think that this is the lowest point that you have ever seen. <laughs> Pretty scary. <laughs> Since the end of the Second World War, which is absolutely frightening, yeah, right? Because frightening. I mean, You know, for, for whatever flaws it has, and obviously it does have flaws, it sets up a framework for rules of engagement, right? So, so that there's at least, you know, somehow all of these disinformation campaigns have taken away the possibility for respectful disagreement, for example. Um, and I find that sad and dangerous in the long run. Yeah, I understand. Yes, so I mean, the Forum Alpach, The European Forum Alpach was founded just after the Second World War to address exactly that and bring Europe closer together. 
Why do you think it's important that in these days Europe works together, that the states work together on those issues instead of just addressing them in nationalist movements, as we can see happening in many um, aspects right now? I'm a historian by training, and the one thing that I will say, that's never ended well. Doing things in isolation has, has, has historically never particularly ended well for anybody. Finding a compromise, if not a consensus, is generally the way forward. Unilateralism and a tendency to dogmatism, you wouldn't do it within your family, so why would you do it on a state level, I guess, is, is, is the way that I look at it as well, right? I mean, if you think of it in terms of any kind of household structure, you can't all sit in your own rooms and not talk to another and decide that you're all going to eat and do something differently, right? It just does not function that way. Um, we do all live on the same planet. I think that there's more challenges that face all of us universally, no matter where we are, um, that can't have a single country solution but have to be discussed in concert, you know, whether you're talking about global warming or whether you're talking about any number of issues, it's a small world as it turns out at this point. So we have to find a compromise to work together. And if you can't find a platform on which to have that kind of discussion, it's it's a little bit of road to nowhere, I don't think. Okay, yeah, uh, I totally agree. I couldn't agree more. I think really we are at the, it's frightening. It's frightening to see what's happening. It's frightening to see how our democracies are threatened right now. So many Eastern states, it's tricky what happens. And Switzerland is no better. Germany is also difficult. I mean, Switzerland basically invented the populist movement. Yeah, We often tend to forget that. It was the first, one of the very first populist parties in Europe came from Switzerland. But Europe right now, it seems like there's no political party that <laughs> can actually stand behind the European idea right now without losing votes. What do you think went wrong in the process of the EU in um, yeah, establishing this once deemed great idea? This is, this, this is more my, 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 my personal view, I think. You know, I think that the, the, the challenge of the European Union was how it transitioned from being strictly an economic union in the European coal and steel community, trying to articulate universal social values for such a huge population. And I think perhaps not being mindful enough of how diverse it was. You know, I think that the assumption was that everybody would willingly join to a very broad and uniform European identity, giving up what their local identity is. I think that was a bit of a miscalculation, perhaps, that they got ahead of themselves. It's also, it's easy to say that it was in trying to absorb the new member states in the East. But again, perhaps because I'm, 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 I'm from the East myself, I, I would take exception to that. Um, because it treats it too much as a as a homogeneous zone, which it isn't. Um, but as you can see, even within the homegrown movements in the far right in the West, 
that is not the case, right? That there's there there's always a, there's always an allegiance to the local. There's always an allegiance and a desire and a need for a local identity, and I think that that was not taken into account, or it was overestimated the ability that you can skip over that. And I and I think that that's not the case. And I think that a lot of that is coming coming back now that there wasn't space that was given to it. So you think there was too much space given to the economic idea of the union instead of the identity and the idea that is behind the people that are in there well or or or, or trying to or assumption that they could that they could easily slide into an identity into creating a mass identity without actually taking it a little bit more slowly and building and building it up and also i mean it's not the united states right so i mean you know the 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 advantage to an immigrant culture is that you move there and you become something else That's not the case with Europe, and I think that that has to be acknowledged. That I mean, you're going to have, you're going to have a, a number of the population that do feel themselves, first and foremost, or exclusively European and kind of supranational. But you're going to have many more people who feel themselves their first allegiances to their local ethnicity, culture, language, nationality, and whatnot. But again. There was the narrative that you have in a number of countries is that the European Union is imposing its values on us, and where are these values coming from? That they're coming from a bunch of your bureaucrats, as opposed to. So, I think that there does end up being a little bit of a question of what the accountability of the European governing structures are. Accountability you do have in local governments, you do have in national governments, but within the European context, there is that is lacking a little bit, as is the relationship with the citizens. So this is a very long. Again, I have lots of long answers for you, but <laughs> um, but I do think it's a little bit. I think it's a little bit of an issue of that is that once you start tr stretching that relationship too thin, it. it um, I don't think that the project is necessarily in danger, um, but I think that it it needs to have a little bit of a step back and reassessment moment. The reason why we met here is the Rethink Alliances spin-off of the Forum Altbach that is uh, funded by Stiftung Mercator. Uh, Rethink Alliances is an idea to bring actors on a Europe or even bigger um, scope together and think of new alliances to strengthen democracies. How do you think this could happen or what ways do you see to go ahead and reimagine those democracies and alliances. I attended the inaugural meeting last year and I have to say it was it was refreshing to me. Um, primarily because it put very different people in the room together with very different perspectives. And I think that certainly within the political and think tank community, it It is its own bubble, right? And so it does not go outside of that very much. You know, for, for sake of efficiency, decision-making can't necessarily be absolutely horizontal. That's not practical. But I do think that it would be improved if there were a different mindset in terms of how you engage stakeholders one hand, you need the will to do that, but you also need a platform to do that, I think. It goes back to one of the one of the little X factors ends up being is that you also have to have an ability for constructive engagement. And here, I think that's probably the biggest question mark. 
depending on how far how far you go, because there is, I think a lot of societies are dealing with so much polarization. I do not believe that there's a fast way of sorting this, but I think that the more opportunities there are to engage diverse communities of stakeholders in society is the way that we inch forward out of this. Um, and particularly those with opposing views. And I think that is one of the most difficult things that you're going to come across. Yes. Super interesting. Yes, it <laughs> sounds amazing. Let's try to get as many opinions, as much pluralism into this and move forward with this uh, promising initiative. It was super, super nice to talk to you. We are also um, looking forward to the fireside chat you're having, yep. I think with Anna-Maria during the European Forum Alpbach. To all our listeners that hear this, um, Johanna is going to have a fireside chat at the Forum. You can check in the program when. Hopefully we can meet at Forum Alpbach in person next year under different circumstances. Uh, yes, yeah, we, we've been there last year and it's just, it's a nice vibe to have all those people coming together from Europe and we think it's exactly what we need to address those issues. It's a good start, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a good start at least, yes. Is there anything else you would want to add? No, I wanted to thank you very much uh, for having me. 